0: morning church hey guys this morning well we were by we I mean my family and I we were on vacation last week and as nice as it is to get to the beach it's also great to be among the uh, family of God and to see all of you guys again so we missed you and it's a privilege to be back here this morning and um, just a little bit of introduction before we dive in this morning, before we read God's word and see what it has to say to us is that we're beginning a new series this week. Uh, Ricardo introduced it last week, but we're calling it House Rules and we're diving into the epistle of First Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, and we're pulling that title House Rules from chapter three, verses 14 and 15, which says what Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we were just in Philippians and we drank deeply of some of the the gospel joys that are there and we saw the implications that that has on our unity as a church. But now as a church, we're at a crossroads. The pastoral search committee is forming and we discussed that a little bit. Uh, we're in a season of transition and change, and God in this book of First Timothy has given us the privilege of being flies on the wall in a conversation between Paul and his protege, Timothy, about how to pastor, how to lead, and how the church should be run. And so Paul lays down these house rules. Those of you who have had small children at one point or currently have children um, know that in your house, Lord willing, You make the rules in theory. I I know it doesn't always play out that way in actuality, but in theory, you make the rules, right? You determine bedtime. Sorry, kids. You determine uh, at least when bedtime should be. You determine you know what kind of food is going to be kept in the house, what the cleanliness standard is going to be. Those are all your prerogative, right? Your children are at your mercy. Now, your home is their home. Right, You ask your children, hey, where is your home? It's their home as well, but it's your house. (laughs) You own the house. It's their home. They belong there, but you own the house. And so we're reminded that we're in the house, the household of God. And we don't make the rules. God gives us instructions on how to conduct ourselves within his household. The church isn't our playground, our personal empire, or our social club. It's the household of God. When we adopted Davion... Um, which was an immense privilege. and We we came home from lunch after the court hearing that morning, Davion that afternoon, or maybe it was in the morning, I don't recall, but he asked that day, he said, because w- we had been telling him, well, you need to be a Kochman now. You need to act like a Kochman now. You know, we were kind of goofing around and joking around with him. And he says, well, does that mean that I need to be an Eagles fan? And so, like, good, loving, tolerant, accepting parents, we said, yes, absolutely, that's what it means. <laughs> you get it, kid. <laughs> Well, Christ paid our adoption fee in his blood, and so we're under his rules of the house. So, let's dive into our text this morning. If you join me in standing for the reading of God's word, we're going to read through the first 11 verses here. And then we'll pray. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we come to you, drawn by your Spirit, through your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we approach you together as one family in the Lord. We pray that you would speak to us in your word this morning. Help us to respond as you would have us to respond, with conviction, with repentance, with joy over your word that you've brought to us. God, build us up in the truth. Knit us together in love and faith and unity and joy so that we would know how to conduct ourselves in your house that you've made us members of. Lord, We pray for the children in the room this morning and even those who are in the nursery. And God, we pray for all of these children that you would draw them to yourself from a young age. Lord, we confess joyfully that we are one household and one family in the Lord. Even the people spread throughout the building and in the nursery. Um, Lord, we, we are all one family before you. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in all of our lives this week and in all the time to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of our message this morning is the aim of our charge. We want to talk about the aim of our charge, which we get from verse five, where Paul says the aim of our charge is love. But as we think about the fact that we are in God's household, the fact that we are in, like it or not, quote unquote, organized religion. Why is it organized? Why have house rules? What is the point of the pastorate? Why even have elders? Why have preaching? These are things that people might question, rightly or wrongly. And we'll see that the aim of the pastoral charge is love, and we'll talk about what that means for all of us, no matter what role or ministry we occupy within the church. And Paul lays down a foundation here in these first 11 verses, but he also returns to this in chapters 4 and 6 in particular. So we'll be returning uh, throughout the coming weeks to a lot of the themes that we see here this morning. But as we dive in, we'll discuss three parts Of the pastoral profile, we'll first discuss the minister's call, the minister's aim, and the minister's method. And as we work through the minister's call, aim, and method, there's six points that I think are instructive for all of us. Laity, clergy, right, whoever we are, there's six points, and those will weave throughout those three heads of the pastoral profile as we get in. So, first, by way of introduction, who is Timothy? Well, Paul introduces him. ...as his true child in the faith in verse 2. So, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, Paul encountered Timothy. Uh, Timothy uh, is the son of a Jewish mother and grandmother who raised him in the scriptures. So he had a love and appreciation for God's word from an early age. As far as we know, his father, who was a Gentile, was probably unconverted. Which would explain why Timothy hadn't undergone the Jewish ritual of circumcision. But he, at this point, was a faithful, promising young pastor... We would say probably under age 30 or 40. And he joined Paul in his second missionary journey that he was on, and he was well-spoken of by all the disciples. Uh, he co-wrote multiple epistles with Paul. So, And this right here, this is a warm letter. As we dive in, you'll see there's an intimate connection between Paul and Timothy, like father and son. The best analogy that I could use to describe it is that Timothy is the Peter Parker to Paul's Tony Stark. There's an Iron Man, Spider Man thing going on, and if you've seen Avengers: Endgame, there you go. If you haven't, I'm sorry to drop an irrelevant cultural reference, but that's what's going on here. Is it's that beautiful, tight relationship there? And in the context here, Paul had left Timothy at Ephesus sometime after his release, we believe, from house arrest in Rome. So you'll recall that the Book of Acts in chapter 28 ends with Paul in house arrest, and he wanted to go to Spain. He makes reference to that in the Epistle to the Romans. Well, we believe that at some point he was most likely released and had a brief fourth missionary journey there before being beheaded by Caesar Nero. But he had left Timothy in Ephesus with an assignment. He had a calling. He had a mission. He had a job. He had a post where he had been put there to lead this church that Paul cares deeply about in Ephesus. He didn't want this church to go by the wayside. Ephesus was in a critical crossroads. And Paul cared what became of those believers there. In fact, if you study throughout the New Testament, we learn more about Ephesus probably than any other church in the first century. And there's a lot there, and we can get into that in a moment. But it's important to remember as well, look how Paul and Timothy introduce, or excuse me, look how Paul introduces both himself and Timothy. Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior, Christ Jesus our hope, And he commends Timothy to the grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So the context is ministry, but their identities have nothing to do with their offices. Their identities are rooted in who they are in Christ. And before we dive in and talk about the rules of God's household, we have to remember that we shouldn't do ministry from anything but the overflow of our identity in Christ. Ministry happens out of the overflow of the grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ. And then Paul dives in. So in verses 3 and 4, we'll look at the minister's call. We'll dive in as well. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So what is the minister's call? And this is the first point for us. The minister's call is to be present. So he tells him to remain at Ephesus, which was planted on Paul's third missionary journey, about A.D. 52. It's about, I think, 15 years before Paul himself dies. He spent three years there, he says, in Acts chapter 20. At least three years that we know of. He was there with Priscilla and Aquila. Those names reappear throughout the New Testament. They were important lay leaders in the body of Christ. It's also where Apollos was preaching, and he had a thriving teaching ministry. This was a place of great spiritual warfare as well. You might remember Ephesians chapter 6 about we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities, powers, right, with with powers of darkness. We put on the whole armor of God. That's what happens in Ephesians chapter 6. But Ephesus was also the place where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was, the temple of Diana. And there was a riot, right, by the idol makers in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, where people were shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians or Artemis of the Ephesians. And finally, the town clerk had to come and calm them all down. But then there was so much repentance over all the supernatural things that were happening through Paul's ministry there in the gospel that people were burning their occult magic books in the streets. Professing Christians were burning these things that they had been holding on to. They're repenting of their occult practices. So this is a spiritual hotspot in the ancient world. And of course, this is the same church in Ephesus that Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians to but he warned in acts chapter 20 that false teachers would come and it seems that these false teachers rose into positions of leadership they made inroads with some of the women of the church in particular and paul left timothy there sometime after he was released from rome heading on his way to spain after the events of the book of acts and then also just remember in the book of revelation there's the seven letters to the seven churches and Where does Jesus address first? He addresses the church at Ephesus. And he says, you guys have left your first love. See, this is a church that had a lot of great potential, a lot of great opportunity, but it was also at a critical point in its history. And by the third century A.D., the church had died. It's a striking study. But Paul placed Timothy there because he cared. The minister is called to be present in his context. Proverbs 27, verse 23, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. The pastor doesn't have the luxury of being aloof, of being unreachable, untouchable. There are no pastors without posts, right? If somebody hasn't been posted over a flock, then they're not a shepherd. If somebody hasn't had an assignment in 10, 20, 30 years, then they're not reverend. They're not pastor. The pastor can't be transient. He can't be far from the people. So the minister is called to be present, just as Paul enjoins Timothy to stay at Ephesus. Also, the minister is called to guard the doctrine. He says, I urged you, I urge you not, excuse me, he, I urge you that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies with which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul urges Timothy here. He needs to be bold. You know, a lot of people think that, that uh, one, of the, one of the downsides of youth is being too bold, of being too courageous, of being a bull in a china shop. And that is a very real danger of youth. But actually as well, it, hubris and cowardice are twin vices. And young men in particular and young leaders are equally sometimes predisposed and tempted to both. Timothy seems to have been more tempted to uh, to, to pull his punches. You see, because in, in 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, you remember that Paul uh, instructs him that he needs to remember that he has a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. He needs to be unashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And so... We have to guard against hubris and cowardice, and he tells him to guard the doctrine. Timothy was young, but he still had to guard the doctrine. He still had to warn. He had a solemn duty to keep the teaching of the church pure, with respect and love, but also with confidence and clarity. In our culture, there's something that we get very confused very often, which is the difference between niceness and kindness. Some people will quip that, that be nice or be a sweetheart or be gentle is the 11th Christian commandment, right, that we add to the 10 very often. Now, kindness is necessary and kindness is essential to the office of anyone who's leading in the church. It's essential to any Christian, right? Kindness is a father who can bounce his child on his knee, who can... who who can bandage his his wounds or whatever it is. Uh, Kindness is the shepherd that takes care of the sheep, but sometimes there's wolves, right? And that same kind shepherd has to take the gloves off when it comes time to deal with wolves. Niceness is the hireling who doesn't care about the flocks. Niceness is the one who entices the wolves with raw lamb chops, dangling them out, throwing them out, hoping that'll keep the wolf fended off when all it does is bring them closer. Niceness is a symptom of cowardice. Nicy niceness. You want a kind man. You need kind Christian leaders. But you don't want soft Christian leaders. And I'm afraid that often we get these kinds of things confused in this day and age. The minister is called to guard the doctrine. He's called to be present. He's also called to warn opponents. He says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he says certain persons. So who are these certain persons? Acts 20. This is where Paul says one of his farewells to the Ephesian elders. Verses 29 and 30. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men twisted speaking, excuse me, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So evidently, these are people in a position of authority. We also get this idea because in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul talks about what it means to rebuke someone who holds the office of elder and how to do so with dignity and kindness and respect. But we have to remember that doctrine matters and sometimes doctrine does divide. We we think that that's unfortunate, but it's actually good. It's actually good that doctrine divides. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century um, British Pastor and theologian says He who is not zealous against error Is not zealous for the truth He who is not zealous against error Is not zealous for the truth So these individuals needed to be warned And what were their errors? In verse 4 it says first of all That they were devoted to myths right? We see references to myths as well In 2 Timothy chapter 4 And in Titus chapter 1 verse 14 This is a problem these myths were extra-biblical traditions. These are legends. This is Second Temple Jewish fan fiction, of which there was a lot. So this isn't just outright heresy, right? This isn't just the big issues, denying the deity of Christ, denying substitutionary atonement. That's not what's going on here exclusively. This is not just heresy, but heterodoxy. Right? This is not only falsehood, but also frivolity. This is not only trickery, but trivia. These are unessential things. These are distractions. And if you think about what it means to be devoted to myths, we've probably all met people like this before. Right? People who, who care more about identifying who the Nephilim were in the book of Genesis than they do about preaching the gospel. right? It's very easy to get fixated on some of these side issues. And, and let's just say, beware of people that, that propound themselves as Bible experts. And I'll put that in scare quotes. Bible experts who miss the Jesus-shaped forest the trees. We can't be devoted to myths. He also says they're devoted to endless genealogies. Well, what is that? There, well, there's, there's two errors that are at play here. There's genealogies in Scripture, right? The Gospels start with those things. They're beautiful things, and there's truths in there. That's not what we're talking about. There's two errors here. One is a Jewish error, a particularly Jewish error, and the other is actually a, what becomes a Gnostic error. And Gnosticism is one of the major heresies that begins to infect the, uh, the early church, But first, the Jewish error here with endless genealogies is that the Jews would attempt to gain street cred by tracing their lineage as far back as it could possibly go, right? Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, we saw a few weeks ago, he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? This was a badge of honor for him. So the idea was to puff yourself up by proving your lineage. And Paul warns against that. That's not the point. The point is not, contrary to our culture, to know thyself. Right. Figuring out who you truly are deep down inside will not satisfy yourself as much as you think it will, because this happens in our modern age. People think, well, I'll I'll experience meaning and purpose if I can just get to the bottom of my tribe or my heritage, my nationality, my history or my group or maybe my, my personality type, my number, my astrological sign or whatever it is. This is vain glory is what this is. You can't fix one eye on Christ and another one on your navel. Knowing yourself, right? Know thyself, that phrase. Knowing thyself ultimately leads to just knowing that you're a sinner. Right, you won't find meaning in here. You look to Christ. Know Christ. That's the way to have meaning in life. And all of this, Paul says, has nothing to do with what he calls the stewardship from God that is by Faith. There's a Jewish error there. The Gnostic error could also refer to uh, some of these... What what happened is that the Gnostic belief was that the physical world is bad. The spiritual world is good, right? So they would would say the, the body and everything that happens over here, that's bad. God doesn't contaminate himself by interacting with this bad, ugly spiritual plane. And so the question was, well, then how could the creator God create this world... And this led to some crazy teachings, including the idea that the creator God was actually a demon, a demigod, an evil God. right? And that became a Gnostic belief in the, in the centuries to come here. But one of the things that they would do philosophically to get around this problem is that they would, they would posit, well, maybe there's just this endless almost kind of chain of, of gods and lower deities and demigods that that well, God didn't create the world directly. He just made it through this being who who created this and created that until finally you get all the way down here to the lowlands, this this miserable physical planet that the ultimate God would never have anything to do with. And so they they would suppose that maybe there's these endless chains of of creation here, and what this amounts to for us, this is just meaningless philosophical speculation, and that's what we also need to be on guard against. Right? This is, this is like how many angels can dance on the top of a pin? Right? The head of a pin? Listen, if your theology cares more about how many angels can dance on a pinhead, then you're the pinhead. Okay? That's what's going on here is don't be a pinhead theologian. Right? Don't be so obsessed with philosophical things that either scripture flatly contradicts or it leaves unknown to us on purpose. And so he warns against this kind of error as well in a church that was dealing with not only Jewish error, but also Gnostic error. And it's something useful that J.C. Ryle also said, he says, Whenever a man takes upon himself to make additions to the scripture, he is likely to begin valuing these things above scripture itself. So speculation has nothing to do with what Paul calls our stewardship Some of your Bibles might say good order or administration. This word here is actually oikonomia, right? So oiko, like oikos, which not the Greek yogurt, but it's the Greek word for house. And nomos or nomia means to manage, to rule. It's where we get the title of our series as well, House Rules, right? This is the economy. That's where we get the word economy as well. This is the economy of God. This is his house. He makes the rules. And all of these things have nothing to do with how we are supposed to conduct ourselves in the midst of it. So the minister is called to be present, called to warn, called to guard the doctrine. So what's the goal, right? If this is God's house... What's the goal? Verses five through seven. Look with me. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The minister's aim is to pursue love. So the aim of all of this teaching, guarding, warning. Listen, the point of guarding sound doctrine is not contrary to popular belief to turn us all into throbbing brains on a stick. That's not the por- The point. The purpose is to build us together in love, to build us up, to knit us together in love, to edify us in real love, not just niceness, but real kindness and love and unity in Christ. Notice the relationship here between love and sound teaching and the inner man. Verse five, look at it with me. He says the aim of our charge is love that issues that proceeds out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It comes out of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. right? What can produce a pure heart? What can produce a sincere faith? What can produce a clean conscience, one that doesn't keep you up at night because you know that your sins have been nailed to the cross and that you've died and risen with Jesus Christ? That's the gospel. Right? Only the gospel can produce that kind of a pure heart. Fixation on myths and genealogies, right? that doesn't do it. Focusing on who we are in Christ—that is what produces this life of love. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. That's what changes a person. And how do we find out about that? Through sound teaching, right? Sound teaching is not the enemy of a life of love. Now we all know that there's Pharisees out there. We all know that it's possible to be right about everything and have no love for others, right? It's it's an ugly thing when that happens. Orthodoxy can unfortunately live without orthopraxy, right? Right doctrine versus right living, right living. But true right living, true orthopraxy is inseparable from orthodoxy. Right living does come from right teaching of the gospel. So this means that when we come across a new teaching, we should judge it not only by its content and what it says, we should also judge it by its ethical fruits. If a teaching seems plausible, it might be true, this makes sense, but all of its proponents, without exception, live like devils or are about to, we should double-check the proof texts used for that teaching, right? I'll give one example. There is a heresy known as hyper right which says that well you look at the the prophecies about the return of Christ and it says well many of these pertain to the destruction of Israel uh, of Jerusalem rather in 70 AD and so many of them are fulfilled which that on itself is fine and that's true but this actually goes too far and it actually says well everything happened in 70 AD Christ has already quote returned and it was just a spiritual return and there's actually nothing else coming. The physical world just goes on forever and forever and forever. Well these are people by and large who still confess they believe Jesus died and rose for their sins, but it's an amazing thing that happens when you believe that Christ is not coming again. One, that makes you a heretic by any historic Christian standard and biblical standard. Two, you live like hell. You live like hell, and it happens. And there are individuals who've been exposed to this teaching, and sooner or later it comes up in their lifestyle because they're not thinking about the fact that they'll face the bar of God. So judge doctrine not only by its content, but also by the ethical fruit that it produces. Because you don't get a life of love, which is the aim of our charge, by hedging your theological bets. You get it by a vital application of all of God's truth to your head, and your heart, and your hands. But an ugly thing does happen when people separate doctrine from devotion, right? He says it promotes speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God by faith. And then in verse 6, he says certain persons swerving from these, and referring to pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, by swerving from these, they've wandered away into this type of speculation, these vain discussions. So why do vain speculations about pinhead theology issues come up? Well, they happen when people need a basic way out of Christian living. People exit off of the highway of discipleship and they end up on these unmarked back roads. So they want to be teachers of the law. And I'm reminded here of Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 7, and I'll read them. You can follow along as well. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 7. It says they want to be teachers of the law. Well, Jesus said, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger." They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They desire to be teachers of the law, rabbis. They love the job title. It says they want to be teachers of the law. The, the, the problem isn't that they're using the law. Right. The problem isn't that they're quoting Bible verses and relying and relying heavily on the Old Testament. That's not the problem. It says without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They didn't understand the law that they were using. See, the law points us to Christ in types, in shadows, in symbolism. And it's summarized by what? What's the summary of the law? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. number of ways you could summarize it, but that's the point of the law, to point us to Christ, to point us to love of God, to point us to love of neighbor. But what they were doing, these false teachers, they were abstracting different things from the law. They were missing the Jesus-shaped forest for all of these trees, and they were focusing more on Jewish ceremony and, well, real Christians do this. And they were also focusing on just pulling out all these myths and things that they could use to attain a higher level of spirituality. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, if you just flip a page over, Paul talks about this. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage... Which the law nowhere does, and require abstinence from foods, which the law also does not do for Gentiles, that God may, excuse me, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So they're pulling out all these rules and, and well, they're legalists. Something we're familiar with. We know what that's like in our culture. There's a number of different ways that people misuse the law today. I'll name three. One of them is legalism, right, Pharisaism. We see this in, in, in maybe churches that we had our upbringing in, right, where it's all about a particular set of rules, including rules that are nowhere in Scripture, like you must wear a suit or your hair must not come down over your shoulders or whatever that is. We're familiar with these communities, but also without being a legalist per se, Right? without believing in works righteousness, without believing that my obedience somehow earns me salvation, you might have everything right on paper doctrinally with justification by faith, but you can still succumb to a legal spirit. Gerhardus Voss, the theologian, says, legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law. And he's referring to this legal spirit here. It's a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch of the rule it submits to. See, lawlessness, antinomianism, saying throw out that Old Testament, I'm free now. right? Those errors aren't the opposite of legalism and Pharisaism. They're actually two sides of the same coin because neither one of them can perceive the personal divine touch in God's law. The fact that God gives us his law as a father and says, hey, here are the house rules. I've adopted you. You're in my house now. Here's how we live. I love you. They don't see the law in that way, and so they're twin errors. So people today succumb to legalism or a legal spirit, and they're saying, if you're a real Christian, you'll do this. You'll have this feast, this this ceremony, whatever it is. They'll pull things out of the Old Testament out of context. This happens today. Another misuse of the law that we see a lot today is prosperity teaching. And we're all too familiar with that from television, prosperity preachers. But what they're doing is they're overblowing the physical blessings of the old covenant, right? The the prosperity promises for the Israelites based on their obedience. They pull those out, they overblow them, and they forget that the point of the law is Christ. There's also a, a third error that we make with the law today an era of pragmatism, or you might even call it positive legalism. Because nobody likes legalism. Nobody likes do not do this, do not do that, you know, do not wear a skirt that goes above your ankles. Right? Nobody likes those do nots. But legalism becomes very palatable. When it's positive legalism, we're only going to talk about law and instruction and practical tips and tricks of living. Like, here's a five-month sermon series on 20 steps to improve your marriage. And it all becomes positive laws and teachings, and it becomes behavior modification. It's another form of legalism. It's a little bit more inspiring. It's a little bit more palatable. It's Oprah Winfrey legalism. But it's still focused on law at the expense of God's Grace and what he's done for us in Christ. It's still more about what I can do to improve my lot and circumstances. And it's not about what Christ has done for me. The minister's aim is love. Third, the minister's method. There's two methods that we want to talk about here as we wind down. The fifth point, the fifth instruction for us under the minister's method is that the minister is to use the law lawfully now we know that the law is good verse 8 if one uses it lawfully understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient and he goes on if you have Romans 7 verse 12 ringing in the back of your head you're like me so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good see if people misuse the law all the time right if legalism has all of these errors, all of these pitfalls, if there's so many dangers in mishandling the law, why not just, you know, leave that back here? Why not unhitch ourselves from that, as one pastor recently said? Why not, you know, do away with all that? After all, isn't it kind of a turnoff anyway in evangelism? Like, we, you know, it, 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 you really don't want to bring that up, right? It's a, it's a distraction. But Paul commends here the lawful use of the law. You know, the abuse of something is no argument against its use. Just because these teachers are misusing the law does not mean that we should not use the law. Because we tend to think very simplistically, as evangelicals, we think law, bad, grace, good. And we pit these two testaments against each other like they're enemies. We think Jesus, like him, love him, he's nicer, he kind of eased things up for us. Moses, too harsh. You know, what's with all the shellfish rules, things like that. And there's some truth buried underneath this attitude. It is true that we are not under law. We're under grace. It's true that in Christ, God has done something new and different. That's the good news of the gospel. But here's what it means. We're, we're not under the law as a covenant of works. And I'll mention what that means. But we are still subject to God's commands as his image bearers. Well, what's the difference? Law simply says, do this. But law as a covenant of works says, do this and live. That's the difference. In the Garden of Eden, God said, do this and live. Well, they broke it and died. In the New Covenant, the covenant of grace, God says to us, not just do this and not do this and live. God says, live and do this. That's the gospel. Live. You know, Ezekiel, in your blood I said to you, live. We live in Christ. And because of that, we do God's law with new hearts imperfectly, but with new hearts The London Baptist Confession says the law sweetly complies with the gospel. They're not enemies. Because when we come to life and the gospel says live and do this, well, do what? Well, it points us back to the law. We're free from it as a way of salvation. We're free from it as anything that has anything to do with our our justification whatsoever. But it's now a guide to us to know how to live and how to please God. It's a gift his people. A couple parallels here to note. Remember, remember what happened in the Exodus, right? God's people were saved out of Egypt. They leave Egypt and then 50 days of wandering later, they end up at Mount Sinai and God gives his law on tablets of stone there. Well, 50 days after Christ died and rose and appeared to his disciples, we have the Feast of Pentecost where God comes with fire again, but this time writing his law on human hearts by the Holy Spirit and not just on tablets of stone. Or to put it another way, the law of God is written on every human heart, every human heart. The difference is whether it's written on a heart of stone or a heart of flesh. For people with stony hearts who are apart from Christ, the law is written there in their conscience, but they're suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Romans 1. For those of us who are in Christ, in the new covenant, the law of God is written on our hearts, but our hearts are, are living hearts. Ezekiel 36. Yet in the year 2019, we, we tear these two testaments apart. We tear together what, what God has, has brought together. We tear it apart. We tear it asunder. The scripture is a two-edged sword. It's got law and gospel, right? And we need to know how to rightly wield it both directions. There is an unlawful use of law, Paul says, but there's also a lawful use of law. That's why we began with Psalm 19, right? How much I love your law, right? You see it in all throughout the Psalms. You see it in Psalm 1, right? That the righteous man, his meditation is on the law. In Psalm 119, you see that the longest chapter in Scripture is written about the psalmist's love for the commands of God because he has that soft new heart. So what does it mean then, if all of that is true, and if we do delight in the law of God in our inner man, as, as Paul says in Romans 7 as well, if that's all true, why does Paul say in verse 9 that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient? Alex, you just explained to us all of the the benefits of the law for the Christian who has a soft heart. So why is Paul saying here that the law is not laid down for the just? So is it true that the law is in no sense for righteous people, people who are made righteous in Christ, not by what they've done, but what he did for them? No, in a sense. And this is true. Paul is saying the law is not for air quotes again, good people. The law is not generally for good people, right? If Adam had never sinned, there would have been no Mount Sinai experience. That's just a fact. Galatians 3.19 says the law came at Sinai, that covenant form of the law. It was a a covenant there with Sinai. Came in because of transgressions. Because people were sinners, they needed to be shown their sin. It came because of transgressions. Romans 5.20, it came in to increase the trespass. It was setting the stage. It was the diagnosis precipitating the cure for our sin in Christ. But we needed the negative diagnosis first. We needed to know how far we fall short. We all fall short of God's commandments. We don't love God. We don't love others as we ought. We all lie, cheat, steal, lust. We break the Ten Commands and the rest of them as well. But since Christ has come now, Romans 7, it says we're dead to the law, not completely. We're still under God's commands. They're a guide to us. But We're dead to the law in the same way that a spouse is, in a sense, released from marriage when the other spouse dies. That's the analogy that Paul uses in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. You're freed from the law of marriage if your spouse dies. And in the same way, we're free from the law in terms of our covenantal obligations to it. Our life in the land no longer depends on it. Our standing before God is dependent upon his grace, which is codified in the work of Christ. So it's not true that the law is in no sense for the believer. Remember Romans 7, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, Paul is talking about one particular use of the law, the purpose that the law has with unbelievers. Historically, Christians in the Reformed tradition have, rep- uh, have, have recognized three uses of the law. The first is as a mirror. It shows us our sin. It leads us to Christ. The second is as a curb. In other words, it discourages us. It's, it's guardrails. It discourages believers and unbelievers from committing gross acts of sin. It holds society together. And third is as a guide. It guides us in how we should now live as Christians whose righteousness depends on Christ. The law is a guide to us. What Paul's referring to here in verses 9 and 10 is this second use of the law as a curb. It's the civil use of the law. The law restrains evil in society, even among unbelievers. And notice what he says about them, verses 9 and 10. First, he says, it's laid down for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners Ungodly. So, in terms of their relationship to God, not getting it. And sinners. They're sinning out here at the horizontal level with other people as well, right? This, this corresponds to the first table of the law, the Ten Commandments, and the second, right? The first four are about you and God. The second six are about you and your neighbor. Well, they're ungodly and they're sinners. They're violating both tables of the law. And he says, strikers of fathers and mothers in verse 10, Literally there, the word in Greek and almost every other translation other than the ESV for whatever reason translates it the way it should be, murderers of fathers and mothers. So he's saying those who murder their fathers and mothers. And here where the ESV also says enslavers, literally the word there is man-stealers, kidnappers. So kidnapping them to sell them into slavery. But the focus here is on the kidnapping, which in Exodus 21 is a capital crime, the death penalty. In fact, all of these sins here, That Paul lists are capital crimes in the Old Testament murdering your father and mother right enslaving Liars perjurers if you committed perjury you would be liable to whatever the 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 accused person would be liable to so in the Old Testament law if someone is on trial for murder and you are a false witness and you say yes they did it and if it's later revealed that the person was innocent and you were a false witness you are now liable for that same execution Everything Paul mentions here are death penalty consequences in the Old Testament. And the point is, he's talking about how the law is used in society, in the civil realm. He's saying, he's saying that the law discourages people. The law holds society working together. It, it, it discourages people. It curbs them. It's the only standard for a sane society. He's saying you have to know the difference between that and the gospel. Right, the, the word being this two-edged sword that cuts both ways. You have to know the difference and handle that sword deftly as a pastor, as a minister. Most controversies today in evangelicalism are law gospel issues. Whether it's the church growth thing and what's wrong with doing a five-part series on purely just how to fix up your life. And we'll save the gospel part for later. Uh, or, or there's a lot of controversy over justice and what justice in society means right now. Most of these are issues of failing to distinguish rightly between the law and the gospel. And the problem is, as I look at it, and others have observed this before, is, is that we, we've we been so focused, and when I say we, I mean those who've discovered the the doctrines of grace recently, within the last 10, 20 years, We got so obsessed with everything being the gospel-centered this, the gospel-centered that, and everything became gospel-centered. Everything became a gospel issue, right? From using plastic straws to gentrification, right? Everything became a gospel issue all of a sudden. And we forgot where the law was supposed to fit into some of this because we went out guns a blazing to engage culture, but we did so with the world's standards and not with God's standards. We did so with man's law and not with God's law. Instead of saying everything is a gospel issue, especially when it concerns the civil realm, when it concerns justice, let's distinguish, Pastor I know once put it, let's distinguish between, hey, not everything is a gospel issue. There are gospel issues and law issues. Gospel issues and law issues. And that leads us to the fact that the gospel is the point, And the gospel is the only thing that can produce that love, which is the minister's aim. And that's why we're here. And so finally, the minister's method also means stewarding the gospel joyfully. Stewarding the gospel joyfully. The gospel, he says, in verse 11, is what accords. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So everything that the law says, about those who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's not separate from the gospel. It fits. It accords with the gospel. The gospel agrees with the law on the problem of sin. But the difference is only the gospel can change hearts. The law can only stand outside and condemn. The gospel actually changes hearts. Grace saves and changes. And in closing, how does this gospel Change hearts. First, by revealing the goodness of God. Notice, it's the gospel. The good news. Not just the news, but the good news. The good announcement. The euangelion, right? That's good news. It reveals the goodness of God who loved us enough to send his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the goodness of God. Why would he do that for us lawless, disobedient rebels? The gospel reveals the goodness of God. Second, it reveals the glory of God. Notice Paul calls it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. In Christ, in the gospel, we see God. Second Corinthians four, six. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let there be light, has shown in our hearts To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know God, if you want to see God, you see God's beauty on display in a way that the Grand Canyon and and all the cosmos can barely hold a candle to. You see the glory of God in in the cross of Christ and in the empty tomb. That's where you can see the glory of the invisible God in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ and that changes a person's heart. And third, it shows us the happiness of God. Because when he says it's the gospel of the glory of God, he doesn't just say that, he says it's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. God is blessed, God is happy. Think of Psalm 16:11. "In your presence there is fullness of joy. at your right hand, our pleasure is forevermore," the psalmist says. With God, there's fullness of joy and pleasures at his right hand forever. God is overflowing in grace. Lest anyone should think in looking at the law that God is only condemning us in his law. The gospel says God is happy and he's inviting us to share in his joy. The gospel reveals the goodness of God, the glory of God and the happiness of God. And so at this crossroads in our church... Find a pastor, pastoral search team, find a pastor who relies on the gospel to change hearts, who uses the law lawfully, not pharisaically, who teaches sound doctrine, who warns opponents when needed, who guards the doctrine, and who is present. Because the aim of our charge is love. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for this word, for your law and your gospel. You tell us how we should live, and you also speak to us in the gospel, and you make us alive through the work of your Son. We give you thanks for it. Lord, help us to put the gospel first. Help us to use the law right. Guide us at this crossroads. Lord, give us shepherds after your own heart as you've promised to your church. We love you. Would you be pleased in the way that we live this week? And moving forward, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.